Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. We are offering three conversations from this week's wrap-up for the recent Digital ILC 2021. This conversation is a discussion among Quentin Anstey, Ian Rowe, Mazanuruddin, Stephen Harrison, Louise Campbell, and me, centering around diagnostics and testing as discussed at the conference. A lot of our discussion focuses on advances in understanding how to use non-invasive tests with Quentin talking about some of the litmus findings and others addressing a range of relevant issues. The conference with its 6,500 attendees created insight, new areas to explore, and controversy. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Last week, close to 6,500 stakeholders from across the global hepatology community convened virtually for the Digital International Liver Congress 2021. Today, join hepatology researchers and key opinion leaders, Dr. Stephen Harrison, Professor Quinton Anstey, Dr. Mazen Nuruddin, and Professor Ian Rowe, plus liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green as they explore some key topics from last week's Congress, today, on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. I think there were several different sessions on non-invasive technologies being put in primary care and various pathways. There was a couple last year, but I think Mead Matthews' primary care pathway down in Southampton was good. John Dillon followed her about making it simple. And Ian commented the other night about, we need to make this as simple as possible so people can follow pathways to try and identify the patients. And I think Easel has greatly helped with the new non-invasive guidelines, which can place if primary care in the UK for example, get access to it, fibre scan straight at the heart to filter out the right referrals and the more complex ones to hepatologists and keep the others in primary care. The only reservation I have that is that that would be great if we actually had an appropriate system in primary care to support weight management, lifestyle, fitness and health, which we do add in a little bit more when we go into a hepatology or endocrine setting. But we know it doesn't work too well in primary care, so I would like to see primary care funded better to be able to offer those better options. Certainly for me, non-invasive technologies are moving forward. I think there was a lot of evidence from Litmus on how strong FIB4 is. Again, the easel guidelines supported that. We're moving in the right direction. We are moving away from biopsy, but can we move completely? No, but I think it will be a combination of lots of non-invasive technologies. And there were some interesting biomarkers discussed by other people. Quentin, go ahead. Yes, I'd agree with what Louise said. If you pull pieces from several of the abstracts we heard presented during the course of the meeting. There are a number of different things there that give us a clue to the direction the field is moving. So if you think first of all about diagnostics and identifying the right patients, some of the data coming out of Litmus, so comparing a range of wet biomarkers was very good. Similarly, the data that Stephen and Michael Pavlidis in Oxford generated looking at the use of FIB4 followed by Fibroscan, all very good for that diagnostic context of use. But then when you're thinking about the drug development pipeline, we also saw some really interesting things. 
So if you think about the Maestro Naffold 1 study, a great example of leading the way to how the field should be, the idea that you're acquiring patients with a non-invasive test, you're following them through on a therapy, and you're assessing efficacy on non-invasives. Now, we can debate whether it was perfect, where there were issues, and so on and so forth. But I think that was a really nice paradigm demonstrating that and shows the way to how we can use things in practice. And then the third strand that I took away from the meeting was about endpoints. So we had Vincent Wong presenting the data on the FAST score on semaglutide and its ability to detect change, which isn't something we've seen before. It was designed as a diagnostic, so that's important. And then also some of the other semaglutide data looking at the intersection of different biomarkers where you're using ELF score, fibre scan and histology and looking to see the wisdom of the crowd. Are they all going in the same direction together? So I, I think there were three strands there, but you have to dig deep for them. I'll just build on that. Quentin, you did a great job of summarizing the context of use of these biomarkers. And just adding to that, just starting at the endpoints piece where the FAST score was brought in, I think Rohit showed data from the combo Silifex or Farsokostat data looking at the similar the similar set of data. So showing that drops in FAST actually correlated to improvement in fibrosis. So that was nice to see a kind of a completely different drug, completely different MOA, completely different patient population using the same tool showing similar type of data. Ifruxifermin had two posters in addition to the late breaker that looked at that specific context of use as well, but combining MRPDFF with ALT and showing that, yes, ALT, 17 units per liter reduction did correlate with improvement in NASH resolution. However, not fibrosis benefit. And there's some nuances to the trial design, I think, that explain that. But when you put PDFF reduction alongside ALT of 17 units, you actually enhance the ability of those two tests to predict NASH resolution fibrosis improvement. In fact, we've talked about PDFF reduction of 30%, then we've gone to 50, then we've gone to 70, and now we have liver fat normalization. It, it doesn't surprise me that if you achieve liver fat normalization and a 17 unit per liter drop in ALT, that's that's the holy grail, right? That's that's where we all want to be. And and this trial, although small, you know, its inherent limitations considered, suggested that. So I do think the crystal ball is beginning to show us how these tests could be used. And quite frankly, just following on the emerging topic conference we had with AASLD the week before, where you have Frank and Annie sitting there and, and encouraging people to look at these non-invasive tests, not as a surrogate of a surrogate, but as a surrogate, you know, link it to outcomes, show us some benefit, and then we can move away from biopsy. In fact, provocatively, I ask, what about an ELF score greater than 11.3 at baseline? Or what about using MRI PDFF as a marker for outcome? Because it kind of spans the waterfront. If your mechanism of action moves liver fat, you can use it to, to diagnose potentially. You can use it as a marker of therapeutic efficacy. And to Quentin's point, all we need are thousand patients worth of MRI follow-up data to show us outcomes. And that's coming. So fantastic way to summarize it between Louise and Quentin, but just a, a couple extra points I wanted to throw in. That's, that's true. Uh, Marvin, Ian, anything to add? I'll just repeat, in addition to the data that everyone talked about, I also like the Agile 3 and Agile 4 data that I think added strength to the fiber scan. We all had issues previously with stiffness of 14 and stiffness of 10. We wondered if the stiffness of 14 really represents cirrhosis and the stiffness of 10 represented F3 or whatever cutoff you want to talk about. So that was presented earlier by Jérôme Bossier, Darwin Seigneur, uh, to strengthen the role in and the 
could uh, decrease the indeterminate zone using a combination of the stiffness and clinical parameters. And Vlada brought a very good point that the area under, under the curve was not quite optimized, was slightly higher, but yet the indeterminate zone was decreased using these two scores. And I brought up the point that the positive predictive value was very good, but these cohorts were a little bit biased in terms of the prevalence of the F3 and F4, which is a, a point that everyone should pay attention with when they talk about PPP. But I thought the, it's, it's a step forward in terms of improving imaging data and combining them with wet biomarkers. Those were really two, good two abstracts. And I, I think, Marzen, what you've just said really highlights the, the difficulty in the short term, and that is tying the non-invasive test to the biopsy. And that conversation that was had at the Emerging Topic Conference with Frank and Anya, and then the points that Patrick Bossett made in the litmus liver screen session on Thursday morning, you know, talking about skipping over biopsy as the as the reference standard. The sooner we can tie the non-invasive tests to outcome, the better, because we'll no longer have to worry about thresholds particularly, because they'll give us a probability of events and and hopefully what the impact of therapy will be on those probability of events. And I think the sooner we're away from biopsy, the better, because it'll simplify a lot, simplify management in practice, and it'll also simplify trial design. So I agree with that. And one of the things I think that's really encouraging is to think about going straight from non-invasives to outcomes instead of having to match non-invasives to biopsy. Absolutely. I, I think it is definitely the way we need to move. I think litmus is generating data you're going to see a lot of data coming out of some of the big phase three studies that are going to help answering this it is the direction the field needs to move because as you say histology there's sampling error there's observer variation as Stephen demonstrated very nicely in the davidson paper it's troublesome for the field it also means when we're tying to biopsy i don't think we're ever going to get an error meaningfully beyond about 0.85 with a moving goalpost the, the question is i guess that now we have enough data showing correlation between NIT's progression and worsening outcomes. The question is how much more the regulators want from us to show is it really improving NIT's lead to improving outcomes? Is that the only piece that is that they're waiting on us and how long that's going to take? I don't know what is missing now to start implementing NITs as a as a primary endpoint. For instance, why not implementing PDFF plus improvement in stiffness on fibro scans plus ELF as a primary endpoint for phase three study now? And a lot of people will argue it's too early or not, uh, but why not? Why not start the conversation when is this ready uh, as a composite endpoint? So I think part of Part of the issue, Mason, Frank alluded to, it's not it's not in their wheelhouse. It's not in, in the hepatology division of the FDA to look at non-invasive. It's almost like he was mentioning that there was stovepipes. There's the whole biomarker qualification program run by what the CDIR, I guess. It's a completely different branch of the FDA that Frank is in. So what we need is maybe what he mentioned, is bring that other division to the table with Frank and Joe Turner's division. And let's have a conversation about how we can work together to generate the answers we need to generate to move beyond liver biopsy. As you mentioned, we already have outcomes data. I mean, you can begin to connect the dots. We've done that already. We've shown that if you improve fibrosis, you improve outcomes. Arun presented that data at AASLD. We also have data from Lena Allen and, and yourself that MRE is linked to an outcome. We have that data with CT1, multiparametric is linked to an outcome. ELF is linked to an outcome. But what we're 
missing here is that little dot connecting fibrosis regression with a magnitude of effect change on MRE, CT1, and ELF score that then connects the dot to outcomes. But that's super easy to generate. Correct. But by also my counter-argument, I'll ask them, then why you have Nash resolution and histology as an acceptable point for the subpart H approval and not letting others that they are NITs that they are now correlating with outcomes be a point for approval. Anyways, I just opened can of worms that we keep going back and forth and emerging topic conference and all that. So it's a topic of debate that's worth keep talking about. Well, first of all, the more we can have these conversations, the quicker that resolution is going to come, whether it's on this podcast, whether it's at the single topic conference, whether it's at EASL or AASLD or side chats with Liver Forum or side chats with the FDA. When we all go to the FDA for certain pharmaceutical companies, those conversations need to be had. The drumbeat will get louder and eventually there will be a pendulum swing, just like there is with standard of care. Amazing, right? I mean, you want to know what makes anything standard of care. It's not one publication in a guidance document. It's not one New England Journal paper. It's it's when that rising tide lifts all boats, when that news becomes so ubiquitous that one day you turn around and it's like, how did we get here? I don't know, but but it's that's what we're all doing. Yeah. So you see my my point, the Nash resolution, why it's an a point of approval. Why not two point Nash improvement? Will get you would to get you approval. The issue here is that at the point that the current histological endpoints were framed, which is now five plus years ago, they were the best that were available. So they were a reasonable pragmatic choice. However, in the intervening period, there has been exponential progress in biomarkers. And so just like you revisit the guidelines, maybe we're approaching the point where it's time to open these conversations again and revisit them. Totally agree. And then you go back to where Stephen was a couple of minutes ago, which is that for us to have that conversation is easy, right? We have venues to have it in. For FDA, it's a lot harder. For regulatory agencies, it's a lot harder. You have more inertia to deal with and more different ways people spend their time. And then if you put the biomarker tests and the drugs in two different places, then you've got the, there has to be enough energy to make that dialogue actually push forward. So I, I agree with Stephen said, the best thing we can all do is have a conversation over and over and over again with them, with ourselves in places that folks might be listening to. Uh, go ahead, Quentin. I completely agree. One of the things where the field possibly does itself a little bit of a disservice is we now have such a wealth of biomarkers that we haven't yet coalesced down to a small number of biomarkers and said, well, these are the standard we're going to follow. And the moment we started to coalesce around a few, that would be very helpful. Even looking at those Maestro NAFLD studies, there were actually subtle differences in the biomarkers presented at the end point between the serotic and the non-serotic arms of the same cohort. And that was one of the things that that litmus presentation was doing, where it was comparing so many to FIB4 as a standard. It was really to provide a yardstick whereby we can say, well, these are all pretty interchangeable, so let's select some of these and go forward with them. And, you know, we're going to do the same with imaging. We'll do the same with various other things as we go forward. But that's part of that dialogue. I think that's a very important point that uh, Quentin is making. We have to make it clear to everyone that the field has moved. Networks like Litmus has done a great job in uh, validating biomarkers. And there's certain ones that has shown that it can do the job longitudinally. And there are certain ones, ELF, 
MRA fibro scan that have shown correlation with outcomes. Not everyone, but there are certain ones that we can rely on. And I think by combining few, we can increase our confidence that we can rely on this composite endpoints to reach where we want to be. We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Over the next week and a half, we will be posting sessions that are edits of the various contributions made at NASHTAG, the Fourth Global NASH Congress, and Digital ILC of the past week. On December 14th, I will be away on vacation, but Donna Cryer will be hosting an episode on completion of clinical trials and what it takes to get there successfully. And I will be back again on the 21st talking about why statins are not like NASH. Later in the month, we will have a celebration of our 20,000 download, and we have much good to look forward to in August and September. I'll tell you about that in a couple of weeks. I hope you'll join us. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.